Okay, welcome to the latest episode of the Future Perfect Talks, sponsored by Epic Games. Delighted to have you all with us. Um, today's episode is the first of a two-part mini-series about basically what's happening in in housing. Housing for all is the is the title of the of the two-part series, and this one we're going to focus on uh, modularity and and designing from from the ground up. Um, uh, I think probably the best way of 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 doing this is that we introduce each introduce ourselves and then jump into the content. But just to summarise who's here because it's a fantastic group: um, Molly Claypool of Automated Architecture, um, Alistair Parvin of WikiHouse, and a number of other projects, which you will of course explain, and uh, um, uh, Brian Ringley from. Boston Dynamics. So how about you introduce yourself fully and then we can kind of go through the theme step by step. Start with you, Brian. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Brian Ringley. I am the construction technology manager at Boston Dynamics. So I am a product manager for the Spot robot uh, and specifically overseeing applications in architecture, engineering, construction, and real estate. Um, I am a former architectural designer. Um, I worked on the design computation team at Woods Bagot for several years, and then I also worked as a construction researcher at WeWork, and that's actually where I discovered Spot. Fantastic. Molly. Hi, yeah, I'm Molly Claypool. I am a director and co-founder of Automated Architecture. We are a spin-out company of a research lab also called Automated Architecture, or OUR for short, at the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL. Um, I like to describe myself as an architecture theorist. I think that's probably the loosest way to describe what I do. Um, but we develop at our platforms for automating community-led housing platforms, broadly speaking. And we also do quite a lot of consultancy work, supporting businesses with their computational design strategies. Great. Alistair. Uh, cool. Hi. Uh, yeah, my name's Alistair Parvin. I'm the founder of Open Systems Lab. Um, we're a non-profit R&D company, basically working on a whole bunch of sort of systems level innovations for the built environment, um, usually involving digital technology, but not limited, you know, digital's just the, just the, the means, right? Um, we, I, I, I like, I sometimes say a good way of describing our, the kind of arc of our work, it's a, it's a bit like a kind of rabbit, just following, you know, following the white rabbit down, down the stack of the built environment, really. So we're sort of looking at things like WikiHouse, which is around uh, a particular approach to how you, transform construction but then we've sort of followed the white rabbit a little bit into sort of design automation and uh, procurement and what that means for procurement into digital planning which is actually probably one of our biggest projects right now is looking at digitizing the planning system and then we're beginning to also look at um, something I've been interested in for a very long time which is kind of redesigning the land system as well. Great so uh, just to only a few small themes to cover. Um, so my name is John Manicherry. I accidentally started a podcast as a way to educate the market on what we're doing, which is what we call service integration, basically helping design user services into buildings because we feel that 
programming of services in built design will become a more and more significant part of the spatial financial sustainability aspect of housing uh, offices and um, cities and uh, offering a platform to support live services because that touches on so many themes and the market is frankly i think market insights real estate development operations is behind i think where it should be we started this podcast to cover the themes and it then became a general conversation on on all of the, all of the related themes which is a which is a fun thing to be able to do so um i i know one thing that's of importance to you um alistair and molly is is the issue of housing rights right so let's just start with what's going on in housing in terms of the social dimension. Is that what's making you work in housing, housing optimization, housing design? Is the social dimension what's motivating you? And if so, what, what is the status as you see it? Or is it something technical or creative? What is, what is motivating you in this space? Um, yeah, I can just leap in. I, um, housing for me is actually a really intersectional place where you can see all of these different elements of life kind of intersect you know the right to the right to housing is really an demonstrative of so many other things our health our well-being our relationship to work and labor our relationship to family our relationship to ecology and the climate it, it kind of coalesces all in housing for me so i see it as a, a way of kind of looking at all of these other issues but through a single typology and housing rights for me because of that intersectionality allows us to actually work in relationship to all of these other issues and and i think that that provides us with a, a really powerful landscape in which we can deploy our work and really begin to associate to other people, you know, everyone has to live somewhere. So it's something that people can understand. It's super tangible. It gives people opportunities to really, you know, find um, their place and space. So I think that's, for me, a really important aspect of housing. I've always worked in housing in my teaching as well. One of the reasons why we landed there was because um, housing as a project within architecture has become so um, it became uncool, <laughs> really, um, in the, you know, after the kind of post-war period. And I think it's because of that intersectionality that we need to pay attention to it really seriously. And we need to re-engage with it and we need to deal with housing in a really important, you know, in a really productive way. And um, housing also has become so financialized that in order for us to begin to interact with it, we ha I think it's easier to go in through these other angles around social values, around domestic space, around notions of family, and we can begin to kind of, you know, really think about what kind of social project can, project can emerge in housing through these other lenses. Yeah, that's how we ended up there, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from for my part, I mean, uh, yeah, the echoes very true. I think. Um, to uh, do a cliche and jump in with one of my favorite Cedric Price, you know, quotes ever, uh, which is technology is the answer, but what was the question? For, for, for me, and I think for our whole team, the question that uh, we've been interested in for a very long time is why is it that developed economies have what they call a housing crisis? Um, and, and weirdly, the wealthier you are, the more of a housing crisis you have, seemingly. So this is not a problem of money, right? And one of the issues of housing is it's surrounded by false framings and oversimplifications as a topic. 
Um, even the def- even the phrase "housing crisis" is actually quite misleading, because as as Molly says, housing is is everything. It's the platform for everything, right? But actually, the real roots of the crisis, when you spend time really understanding the systemic issues going on behind it, you realise actually it has a lot to do with land and our land system and our system of land ownership and our development models. And so, there's an interesting thing because if you just try and apply technology to this problem on the top, you say, right, we're going to move into this amazing future where we've got digital manufacturing, we've got robotics, we've got design automation, but actually you're going to arrive into a future in which the houses aren't going to be better necessarily, and they're not going to be cheaper, right? Because that's not how the land system works. It's because, because underneath it all, they've still got this, these same business models and it's these, uh, you know, the same business models driving development and, and so forth, right? And you know, I'm, I'm, it's, not, it's not really a criticism of those, but they're really, really obsolete. And they're really what's what's killing us, right? They're, they're, they're a big part of the problem as well. So if you're just, uh, just applying digital technology onto this system, it's a bit like sort of running a 21st century app on top of an 11th century operating system. And our land system really does go back to the 11th century. So um, there's, there's a kind of thing where inevitably, if you're really interested in that question, you find yourself saying, well, actually, you know, okay, how could we innovate that? And, and say, and if it's part of the business model is part of the problem, well, how could we, how can we imagine different business models? How could we redesign that business model? And part of that, by the way, is changing who invests in housing, changing who can build. And one of the things we're really interested in is a really basic idea, which is actually, can you allow other people to build other than the land speculators? Can you also have communities, people building for themselves? And you say, well, if we want those other people to be able to build, then actually you come back to technology. You can say, well, wait a minute, what technology can we build that makes it easier for those people who currently would say, well, that's not scalable. We can't do that. You know, communities can't, people can't build for themselves. Small businesses can't produce high performance passive houses or whatever it is. And say, well, actually, we've got some technology here and the web, we can, we can change those assumptions. So that is a kind of, it sets, it, it's, that's the kind of question we're working to in a way. Uh, Brian, I mean, maybe just maybe just briefly, from your perspective, does, does any of this matter, right? Do you feel that, I mean, maybe not specifically in terms of spot and Boston Dynamics, but in just in terms, of, in terms of automation, big picture, do you feel intuitively, maybe you have a specific view that uh, robotics and automation is directly going to address um, the social dimension, the intersectional dimension of housing, or is just it's just out there? Do you feel there's a link or is it, are we going to have to make that link? Yeah, there's certainly not a natural link. I think we have to put the effort into making that link. Um, and I think that's, you know, I've been following Molly's work in particular for a while because she's explicitly making that link. And that's actually part and parcel of kind of her approach toward theory and practice. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I think we need to root these technology concepts in those kind of social ambitions um, as well as particular types of architecture and construction methodologies to make this relevant to the public and to drive this technology, this technology that will, you know, essentially develop with a mind of its own if, if we don't direct it um, to actually shape the way that this technology manifests and not be so passive in its development. Actually, you know, so I, I, I'm learning to, to, to stop hiding this fact, but the reason why I'm working on what I call service integration is basically because I believe it's how the best to do sustainability is that you leverage the spatial environment to create efficient models of consumption. Um, 
and uh, you design around different ways of behaving. And, and I, I'm now being sort of more clear about that because partly because I have to be, right? Because people just don't, mostly don't extract that insight for themselves. But partly because why not? You know, I can make it more and more clear and we can show more and more kind of step-by-step -step fruits of our work. But I think the bigger message, and that's kind of why I'm happy to be doing the sort of second, slightly broader season of this podcast, is that I do think it's important to pull these strands together, right? I think your point, Molly, about there being... Um, uh, as you know, the idea that you just have housing and you have automation and these things are separate makes no sense. If really what you need to do is to is to automate a better model, right? As, as you, I think it was you, Alice, that, that pointed out that you can't have an antiquated model of housing and then try and automate that, or you shouldn't. And I feel the same with with consumption. We've got models of consumption that don't represent the digital world we live in. The missing opportunities to do all sorts of things. But unless we pull those strands together, we won't. I think. I think we will miss the opportunity to to use technology. I think in a really um, empowering way. Uh, so let's take even one more step back, right? Because you opened the door to it, Alistair, and, and it's very rare that, that people even want to talk about this. But I think it's an exciting question, and it's one of the most foundational questions, in fact, in any domain that you know, economics covers. Who has land? <laughs> and so to explain. Explicit this way, I explain your work in, as it were, land reform, how it relates to your, as it were, technical work. And then, Molly, maybe you chime in, because I know that you're also working to some extent from this perspective. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's who has land, and it's also what does has mean, um, I think is also an interesting thing to arrive at here. I, I mean, and we really arrived at this, you know, through that thing. Of, there's a weird thing going on where, in principle, almost everybody agrees on what we want, right? We love the idea of... Um, you know, we want to build sustainable, really beautiful, high quality neighborhoods. We want prosperous places. And yet we're kind of also confronted by the fact that a lot of the industrial incentives in the current system aren't there. So, you know, you know well, where did those incentives come from? And when you start drilling into that, it's, it gets a bit weird because you start, you know, we're, we're taught these very political narratives of left versus right. And you, and you go, well, right, there's this, it's got to be the state versus the market. But actually what we began to kind of see is, well, wait a minute, there's um, actually, if you get deep enough, you realize that ownership, we, sort of, we use words like kind of money as if these are sort of layers of reality, but they're not, right? They're things we invented. And ownership is definitely a thing we invented, right? So if you look back into the history of ownership, um, you realize that it basically has its roots in the feudal system. So there's this kind of really strange thing where we, we've ended up with a kind of a definition of, of what it means to own land, which is built on a set of principles that almost no one agrees with from either the, either the left or the right. So, you know, the, the kind of critiques of that system have included Karl Marx and Adam Smith and Milton Friedman, you know. So um, the, there's a kind of interesting thing to say, well, actually, if we don't see it, once you realize that those things can be designed, you can start unpacking and saying, well, wait a minute, what does ownership consist of? It consists of a series of rights and obligations. Some of those rights are things are obviously good things like security of tenure. Like we all believe in the idea that everyone should be able to live somewhere and not get turfed out on someone's whim. Right. right? That would be a nice world to live in where everyone had security of tenure if they wanted it. Um, that's what's great about ownership. Um, but actually, you know, if you, if you could separate that out, you could unbundle it, if you like, from the other parts of, of ownership, which are, by the way, if this the value of this thing just goes up arbitrarily, you get to capture that value. So um, 
the idea is, well, what if we go back to that original piece of paper? Because that's all ownership is. We talk about land, but it's not really about the, the earth. It's just about pieces of paper, right, uh, originally. And um, you say, well, what if you were to redesign the terms of that? It gets re- you op- It's opening up. And we don't know what the answer is, but it's suddenly opening the door to a whole design space to say, well, what actually, what if we could, we could kind of, if you like, find a third way through this, this kind of um, housing problem by saying, what if we could invent a new form of home ownership? What, what, would that, what would that be? And if you went to a young person who couldn't afford to own a home today and say, well, would you like to rent for the rest of your life? Or would you like to own a home, which is yours for the rest of your life, but by the way, you have to pay a community ground rent, or by the way, if its value goes up, you don't get to keep that value, you just its value will stay the same. A lot of young people would say, yeah, that sounds great to me. So it's really interesting because it's sort of, it's not something that we realized was a thing that could be designed. And actually it is. Hold on, before, before we, we jump, jump to you, Molly, um, that sounds good, but how, how is it supposed to work? I mean, saying those very intelligent things has changed the fact that land is owned by a very small number of people. Yeah, and that's basically the thing. So, if you kind of the kind of movement for this is 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 known as Georgism, if you like, which is after the the, the economism economist Henry George. And generally speaking, if you speak to Georgists, what they'll advocate is land value tax. And it's like, well, yeah, politically, getting that fight where land is still incredibly constant, you know, land ownership, particularly in the in the UK, is very very concentrated, still hilariously aristocratic, actually, in its structure. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, how, yeah, that's what you're going to do, like introduce a land value tax. That's going to be one heck of a political fight. So I think that's one of the interesting things about being a designer is that you don't necessarily start from the top and try and have a revolution. You start from the bottom and say, well, actually, can we make a different model? And if we could design a different model, can we design it in such a way that somebody who does have land, perhaps it's a public sector authority who, who, who have a want particular climate or social outcomes, or um, perhaps it's a, a long-term landowner or whatever, um, or community, you say, well, actually, we're going to opt into that model. And I, you know, I love, for example, Creative Commons. I take a lot of inspiration from Creative Commons because essentially what Creative Commons did is they, they created other ways to license, other ways to own intellectual property, and it's an opt-in model of reform. So that's, that's kind of our approach to that. Is, and we're, we're still quite early days and working with lots of, in, talking to lots of interesting people about this and experts and stuff, but... Uh, the, the basic approach is could you design a sort of opt-in model and see if you can get anyone to opt into it okay molly what's your take yeah so i mean one of the ways that we've been thinking about this question of ownership is through like what a house really is because one of the things that i think alistair is alluding to is like our value system so we have what you know our value system right now really privileges the really tangible you know, a hectare or whatever, you know, like you're the physicality of that land and also the physicality of a house, right? That house is a, a static permanent object. So one of the ways that we're trying to kind of break up this question a little bit and begin to unravel this issue of ownership is thinking about how can we design architectures or how can we design housing that might change over time. And thus it kind of breaks down this idea that your house is something that's always exactly as it is, unless you choose it to change. And when you do choose it to change, usually it's very, very difficult to change it, very expensive, very onerous. 
you know, most people don't have that opportunity. So we're thinking about how do we design an architecture that can that can change over time in a way that is accessible, in a way that can accommodate for diversity, in a way that can accommodate for different needs. And it's a difficult question, right? Because it begins to open up all of these questions around our value systems and our value systems of of why do we need something that feels like a mid-century terraced house? Why do we need something that feels like a you know a high-rise flat? What 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 is our attachment to this as as people and as a society? Um, and the ways that we're doing this is we're trying to re. I mean, the question that came up just earlier about automation. One of the ways that we've been thinking about it is like if automation is necessary in order to begin to really think about distributing some capacity for building into communities, which is the argument that we make in our, then we need to design architecture that's really suited for automation. So on the one hand, we need to design an architecture that can break that land ownership model or just that ownership model period. But we also need to consider it in relationship to the forms of technology that are emerging and being able to distribute that so that people can understand this relationship between change, technology, architecture and space. And it's a big challenge, but this is the way that we're trying to think about it. Do you feel that yourself, Molly, that there's an opportunity to do political reform in the land space or, is, or are you following Alice's model of, of bottom up? Um, so it's a funny question. We, um, so just today we've been doing a project in Hackney in East London, where one of our partner, our, our main partner is Hackney council. And we've been working, um, with an area regeneration manager there who is very optimistic and positive and energetic around change. Um, and we've been trying to design a series of policy conversations with the council to begin to think about how this project that we've done with them, which is about, um, you know, at homes that change over time and how can communities get involved in these kinds of conversations around housing production has been really, um, it's been very, like, it's been very positive, but it's been very long, these conversations, because I think there's a lot of fear. Now, one of the ways that we've just, that through this work, we've found some space actually that we can begin to operate is really thinking about meanwhile use. So for example, in, I mean, many, if, <laughs> Lots of different councils have a, have land that is either too risky for them to develop, or it's too expensive for them. It's too expensive for a developer to, to develop, so the developer can't they can't sell it off to a developer. So we have these this you know land that's being held for whatever period of time. We're trying to think about what is that meanwhile use that could activate that community in a way that enables us to rethink, you know, what is that land? What is the potential of that land? And what are the new models that might find us ways to make those potentials real. Um, so for example, we've recently taken over a playground in Clapton in East London, where we've done a, a where, which is the result of kind of this two years of work with Hacking Council, where we're thinking about how does, how does this land get used and how do we activate it and how does the community get involved with it? So we've built a housing prototype that's, um, uh, yeah, having a conversation with the community about what that land might become. And um, and I think that's where we can begin to intersect. So in a way it is bottom up and it's also, you know, very specific to being able to find the right people to have those conversations with because government is obviously very complex. Um, 
oftentimes very opaque. So I think, you know, if we can find the right champions, and I really hate that word, but it's true, the right champions within those conversations, then new change is possible. But it is, um, it does take some form of leadership as well. And I think within the UK specifically, we don't have that leadership right now. So you, you started the, um, the you, know, you started helping us kind of build the rest of this episode, which is what is the intersection between automated, modular, um, technically advanced housing, and as it were, their housing, the housing problem. So let's kind of build that piece by piece. Uh, go back to your point, Molly, about about you know the classical housing typologies. What, what, expand on that. What is there an issue there in terms of creating housing opportunity? for more people is it that we have the wrong typologies is that we should revisit older typologies what what was your point more precisely so i mean i can give you a great example um of the yeah i can give you a great example so uh one of the places that i'm working is Knoll west in bristol in the southwest of the uk it's a 1930s garden city you know um was built you know during the war really or just before the start of the British and um, involvement in, in the war. And it has, um, it's, every house is a, a three bedroom house meant for a nuclear family. And um, up until the 1960s, there was very strict guidelines on how houses could be maintained, but also how houses could be adapted. And obviously as, as society has changed and Noel West has changed over the last, uh, you know, 70 years, there is a substantial amount that has been done to these this housing stock that has adapted them, these houses in, in you know, a huge variety of ways. But generally speaking, these houses are not able to change very much. And there's um, in that community, there's this man named Don. He's in his late 70s. And he um, had a sister who he was a carer of, who he cared for for you know, her entire adult life until she died. And because of her caring needs, he had to adapt his house in all of these ways that you, I mean, it's incredible the way that he's adapted his house. But now he, after she's passed away, she, he has a house that he can no longer, that's no longer suited to his needs. And he, he can't sell it because it's so suited to his life with his sister that he, nobody wants to buy it. It's either too expensive to unpick or you know, it's so rare that someone would need those, need these, you know, the adaptations that he's made. So he's stuck in his home for his golden years, right? Where he actually is free to do what he wants to do. And I, so I think we need to think a little bit differently about what are the kinds of typologies that we're designing for? And can we really think about um, designing housing typologies that can be unpicked, that can be changed more easily, that can adapt to, to, to social needs, familial needs that change, social practices that change, um, and I, we don't have that right now. We have some amazing people working in this space trying to do this, but we generally speaking don't have that right now. I'm going to kind of weave you sort of incrementally into the conversation, Brian, as we as we as we get more and more um, kind of technical. But do you have a sense again, sort of high level, of the of the potential for on this specific point for automated? Um, somewhat automated uh, design, build, production, fabrication of, of, of housing to facilitate more um, you know, flexible typologies? Do you have, is that something that you, you think about in the big picture? As I say, it's probably not very relevant to Boston Dynamics today, but do you have a sense of that? Yeah, that's okay. Not everything has to directly relate to a four-legged robot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I can certainly try. Uh, you know, for me, the there was kind of 
an awakening when I moved from traditional architecture practice to WeWork. Um, I had spent a lot of time as well as, you know, my colleagues in a similar technology domain. Um, I like to joke about it, which is just kind of aggrandizing the wealthiest clients with, you know, complex form, right? So I felt like all the, you know, top talent, at least in terms of computational design, you know, were really being leveraged toward things that didn't really seem to serve a broader social good and, you know, certainly accepted that as part of living in a capitalist society. But uh, when I went to WeWork, the idea that there could be challenges, there could be both ways to use that technology that were also just as kind of technically and intellectually challenging to just make the experience of space better, whether it was thermal comfort um, or, uh, you know, social access, things like that, that actually impact your day to day and how you experience a building versus just kind of looking at it from across a river in a photograph. You know, that, that seems so obvious in hindsight, but it was really kind of a rude awakening. And part of that was also doing a lot of reading when I first joined WeWork, doing a lot of reading, um, like work in the city and Frank Duffy and the idea of sharing layers, right? So that was kind of required reading when I came in and realizing that there's all this infrastructure out there. And you could argue that you know, our jobs, they're to have more impact as designers, especially in urban spaces, we could really just be focusing on the kind of the stuff inside the space plans and the services, and that the skin, the structure and the site, the things that, you know, I had thought were the primary architectural elements and spent so much time on actually weren't, there was a lot of fixed stock there in the ability to reconfigure that, you know, with an argument for sustainability and an argument for also as, as Molly was kind of touching on this, this issue of accessibility, right? It's not just about making buildings last longer. It's about making them serve um, wider groups of, of people over different periods of time. So around the same time, I had also met the Novikov brothers, uh, Fed and Petter, and they were kind of peddling this uh, idea called assembled uh, which was spelled in the kind of like clever millennial startup way without any vowels. And they were coming in and they were talking about this idea of robotic spatial reconfigurability. And, and I thought they were out of their minds. Um, they just did not understand the value of that. But then it was like two or three years later, that stuff started to click with me. And I really started to see that, you know, the value that architects really provide to the public was in this idea of providing the ability to reconfigure. And then it wasn't just a technical and spatial challenge, but it was also about who is in charge of that reconfiguration. So, you know, Alistair was talking about, um, you know, essentially the abstraction of land ownership and, you know, you could take that abstraction pretty far. Uh, yes. You see, even with a model like WeWork, right. Where, you know, you've got all the abstraction of land ownership and leases and then like multiple additional levels of sublease abstraction. Um, and and even onto the abstraction of, of IP, right? Like the Victorialist class from, from Hacker Manifesto, that kind of idea. So it can really just spiral out of control. So I felt like very interested in the idea, kind of taking what was going on at, at WeWork with, you know, tenant improvement work and focusing on the urban core. And then what I was thinking about with robotic reconfiguration, 
And then I worked with Maria Yablanina and Julia Brunaro for a smart geometry um, event about spatial reconfigurability that was ostensibly about office space, but you know it didn't really have to be topology specific. But it was in kind of it, it did need to be modular, and it needed to be something. And I think this was the kind of key idea was it needed to be something that the tenants could do themselves. So it wasn't just an architectural installation; it was also a a software interface or tool. Uh, we were using Andrew Human's Human UI to try to, you know, democratize design computation, so to speak, and create simple interfaces that, you know, anyone could use over the web, presumably. And it was also about creating some kind of robotic tool that could also be used by anyone. So we went back and forth for a really long time about, is it a mobile robot? Is it a fixed robot? Is it a drone? Is it a combination of things? Is the wall itself robotic? And we kind of settled on this just hybrid idea, which was basically just a tool, like a small robot as a tool, which was basically a gantry that did some fiber winding to create a physical partition. So it really started to push me to think about this kind of ecosystem of spatial thinking, you know, modular and industrialized construction methodology, robotics, and both hardware and software tooling, but also, you know, yeah, who owns the space, but also who, who controls the space. And then do they actually have agency to do what they want? And I think this is also where a lot of Molly's work really lands, which is, can the tenant, you know, actually leverage technology and can we help them develop technology that gives them the agency to make those changes? Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that story. I mean, I think one thing that's happening, and I, I feel kind of more and more strongly about this, is that the uh, and it, and it sort of is a thread running through what you're, all, what, you're, what, you're all, what you're all saying is that the um, the givens in terms of programming and typology are themselves a, a problem, right? One, one of the things I'm fascinated about, and I'm writing something on it, partly to explain the whole premise of this podcast and and certainly pre present sort of why Last Meter exists in in the bigger picture is that there's lots of imprints. I call, I'm starting to call it the invisible foot of the market, right, as opposed to the invisible hand of the market, which is that the layouts and the formats and the formulas and the programs, typologies of the, the built space are basically um, uh, epiphenomena imprints of the economy, right, uh, and the, 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 the socio-political kind of um, uh, zeitgeist of the time. And I think that um, when we... Uh, engage housing. We say we want to fix housing. We are partly absorbing a lot of that of those presumptions. We're 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 presuming that certain people will have certain kinds of jobs. We'll need to be in certain kinds of places. We'll need to move in certain kinds of ways. Uh, we'll live in certain kinds of groups. And I think that for, for me, that's something that inherently should be should be questioned, discussed. I think any kind of social progress involves um, asking what is the function or the or the activity base of a society? Why are we producing these things? Why are we consuming these things? Why are we associating these groups? Um, but to have these conversations, we actually have to kind of have the opportunity to have these conversations in more than an abstract way. We have to have the opportunity to think through what what could be different. And if things functionally can't be very different, um, then it's a bit of an abstract conversation. And so, you know, part of what's valuable, I think, about this conversation we're having right now is that we start to see the glimmers of potential if we have configurable environments, right? Um, so 
how do we create a better dialectic between the social structure, the capital structure, the organizational structure the, of a society and the, and, the, and the built space? Well, in, in, at least in part, we need to un, unpick or unlock presumptions around how space is organized. And some of that will be on a dynamic basis. We'll learn by doing, we'll change over time. And then that goes even deeper into who owns the land and somewhere in the middle. Can we, can people, even, even if the potential was there in theory, are people able to op- op- operationalize this potential, which was your, your final point, Brian. Uh, we'll come back to that and kind of will surface um, you know, the relevance of what Molly calls uh, discrete design or discrete architecture um, to kind of surface the, the, as it were, the empowering, the, the needs for there to be an empowerment dimension of automation and modularity and so forth. Um, just let's talk for a second about, um, just to kind of, kind of get some more flavor on, on typology and morphology um do we need to live in in places that are very different from each other right and i'll just sort of <laughs> clarify where I'm, where, I'm, where I'm driving here i have come to the view that one of the things that happens is in in architectural design in particular but broadly speaking in urban morphology is that we create a kind of um wrapping of differentiation, we call that design. So the volumetric may be wacky, and there's a different facade, and there's you know there's baubles and there's bells and there's whistles in terms of light and color and just differentiation on the on the surface level. But practically, practically, what's being produced is yet another two-person apartment with exactly the same spatial layout and premise and sort of social model of spatial use and economic premises behind it. And so you have this irony where. There's lots of differentiation, and it, without it, architectural officers wouldn't be doing any job. They, they wouldn't be having work. Is what they're mainly doing is sort of fiddling with details. But actually, the underlying premises is super static and super conservative. And I have a feeling that what productization in the phone space, for example, mobile phone space, is giving us is the opportunity to reverse that presumption, which is that the form factor might end up being very, very uninteresting. Everything looks roughly the same, but what you do with it internally is hyperdynamic. Right, what it what that space enables, um, what that product, if you like, that building product enables is hyper dynamic, hyper extensible. Um, so that's where I'm heading. And so kind of to, and, and of course you may think that's wrong, but the question is to kind of set that up a little bit is um, do we need to have different looking buildings? I mean, that's a crass way of saying it, but why are we building buildings that just look different all the time? Is that good or bad? So maybe start with you, um, Molly. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's um, about, you know, good or bad. I think it's more about enabling people to have the choice to decide what kinds of buildings suit their needs. So in the end, you know, I think in the end, really, it comes down to that, you know, like, and some people will have absolutely no need to, to customize, you know, their living space. There's but many people, many people do. And so I think, you know, it comes down to how do we, how can we design systems for building that can enable that diversity or not, you know, that can, can become kind of like enable a standard, but also enable diversity within that. Um, And that's what we're trying to do in a way with the discrete project in that we think about how can we develop a framework that can enable diversity, but it can also be able to maintain certain standards. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you, John, maybe even take it further. I think a lot of 
I wouldn't describe that much architecture as that different. As you say, a lot of the differences are imposed attempts at differentiation, dressing up of what is fundamentally the same beast. I mean, I kind of see typology as largely, I mean, it's interesting, but I see it as largely an emergent property. Um, and broadly speaking, form follows finance. Um, it, you know, the patterns that you'll get, and they are patterns. It's, I mean, I really kind of, I think, where, uh, Christopher Alexander basically had it right there, whether you like the particular patterns he liked or not, his basic way of looking at the world as, as patterns, as, as, a, as a sort of emergent, sort of imitated, passed on vernacular typologies. Capitalism has a bunch of patterns and, and communism had a bunch of patterns and so forth. Uh, the patterns that emerge essentially follow, emerge from the underlying organizing structure and particularly who has control. I was really sort of, Brian, when you mentioned the Frank Duffy's shearing layers thing, I sort of, that, you know, I love that because um, it's probably a common factor across all of our work that, I mean, we even use those those shearing layers actually as an ordering structure for data in some of the stuff that we're working on. Um, and I think when you start to, to, to unbundle houses uh, and, and see them almost through a sort of more product design lens, uh, you do that, right? And, and what's interesting then is, like who, is recognizing that those things can be separated out and then asking who is in control of the design of which of those layers. So obviously, you know, the big thing is, the first one is, can you separate out who's in control of the building from who's in control of, say, the land or whatever, right? Now, the 20th century, all our industrial models were these big centralized things where which essentially ran on the assumption that stuff can only get done by large big um well capitalized players and so we tended to bundle the whole thing together and so and that's why we start talking about housing because we see it as a house but of course we all actually when you look into it you will realize well the thing that makes your house expensive is not the house actually it's mostly the land underneath it so as soon as you begin to unbundle that those those sort of seven layers of what makes a thing and say well actually you can use technology. I mean, the heart of this conversation, that's essentially the disruption point is, can you use technology to change who can design and who can build and who's in control of some of those different layers? Um, and that's quite, and it's quite important. You know, it's not just a kind of nice to have in the sense that, you know, as I always say, we all agree that we need to build um, low energy building, low energy homes, right? And yet the only person with a direct incentive to actually do that is the person who's going to live there and pay the heating bills for the next 20, 30 years. And yet at the moment, they're not in control of those design decisions. They don't own those design decisions. So can you use technology to unbundle those things to say, actually, yeah, we can do that now. That, that, that 20th century assumption that production can only be done by big, centralized, well-capitalized players is wrong because there's this thing called the web and we can use automation to lower thresholds and so on and so forth. And, and you know, and that's what's really cool about that. And I think, Molly, you touched a bit on this before, is that through some of your work in Hackney is, and indeed in Old West, actually, the moment people see that, it's transformative. And we found this with WikiHouse. The moment people see how easily they could build a really amazing home for themselves, they suddenly stop talking about housing and they start talking about, well, wait a minute, why can't I get my hands on a piece of land? They start seeing it straight. So right. I feel like it becomes so when it, as soon as it becomes tangible, it's it's you're right, it's transformative. You know, the, the community is that we're working in, and I'm sure, you know, as you said, you experienced this yourself, it's, it create it sows the seeds for transformation at a scale and in a way that, you know, hasn't, I think hasn't been seen in decades. 
really, you know, across a community, people really understanding that they have agency and that the empowerment to really take control of that agency is not that far from their fingertips is it's amazing to witness. And I, I wish that more people had an opportunity to be able to, to, yeah, just to see, to see that and to really understand the tangibility of it. I, I think that's, I think that's a, Alison, that's a very brilliant um, kind of um, insight, which is to say the, the, the idea that if people, people need to have more control, at least more accountability and transparency over who has agency over the underlying layers, right? The layers under the layers of the built environment that they live in, whether they bought it or not. And obviously you want to bring the agency to the people that use it and are responsible for it on a day-to-day basis. I think that's fascinating. One thing I find maybe a little bit frustrating is that the the conversation around um, Frank Duffy's shearing layers, which Stuart Brown has kind of adopted in his pace layer model, is it's not it's it's as it were one of the missing ideas in the in the built design housing and AEC space there's there's so much focus on technical solutions and i would say so few structuring ideas i'm permanently asking people in computational design yeah but what are we optimizing here and how do you know right and it seems like we have a real lack of 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 knowledge i mean also i do think that those 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 concepts are very powerful but we partly because we don't think about them enough. I think we need to advance them more. I mean, to use that example, I'm permanently trying to explain to real estate that there is a layer, I use the language of layers, at the surface of their property, which I call the last meter, which is being platformized by third-party actors. When Amazon puts package lockers into a building, they're basically putting in free vending machines, right? Vending machines conventionally are valuable because you're using premium space, and so the the vending machine operator shares revenue with the real estate operator or owner but that's not happening with package lockers it's not happening with package deliveries it's the opposite which is the space is being adopted so if you extend the sharing the sharing sharing layer model and it relates to residents as well right is they think they're getting a convenience but really what's happening is that massive corporations are platformizing and absorbing the the last meter interstitial layer that wraps the rest of the building envelope um and so that's just to kind of translate my work into that, into that, into that narrative. But it's again, it's about empowerment, as you say, Alistair. Who has control of the layers of physicality um, that you know that and, and that embody and surround people's living and habitation environment? Yeah, it's absolutely um, right. I mean, when you when you um, it, when you sort of say it like that, it makes me realise that we when we talk about the the services layer in that shearing diagram. We, we've always framed it within the envelope of a building. But of course, actually, that's complete rubbish, isn't it? The service layer, especially now, extends out to the neighborhood, to the, to the regional, to the national, to the global scale. Um, there's a quite funny thing about this that I think Buckminster Fuller always said that actually, you know, we focus on the architecture. But um, actually, if you take a typical suburban neighborhood, um, it's the fact that there's water being pumped to it and electricity and sewage being pumped away that makes it habitable. And if you turn those things off, um, people would there'd be an exodus within hours. Um, so he said, when you think about it, architecture is really just fancy nozzles, which I just thought was very funny. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just just on that point, I mean, I, wanna, I don't want to kind of go into too much, but it, well, I can probably kind of loop back to it later in this conversation a little bit once we've you know fully gone into into the technical aspect of the conversation. But um, my view, I actually was speaking because the second part of this episode is with Fed uh, Novikov um, on housing for all. Um, from a more kind of business and verticalization perspective, like how do you wrap all the elements up and sell them on? 
you know, we're talking about first principles, who owns the land, who benefits, how do we create modules that we can design from. But in the, um, you know, when I was speaking to Fed and actually Petter, because he's joining your, the other episode with you, Brian, on robotics, um, uh, we were talking about that principle, which is that one of the things that we work, I mean, demonstrates and demonstrated, although people don't use this language yet, is that the services layer on top of the physical asset is coming the driving value proposition of a building, right? And, and they think of it that way. We have a package of services and we're going to build a building underneath us rather than property developers who say, well, we want a building. We may, may or may not add additional services beyond utilities. And my view is that, that service stack just gets more and more and more extensive, right? So you go from the classic services, you know, electric, light, water, heat, and then if you like the basic spatial service of whether it's a functional office or a functional residence, and then you layer up from there. So you have posts and that becomes package delivery and then it becomes food delivery and it becomes, you know, um, you know, uh, re repair services, and then it becomes homework services and dog walking, and then it becomes, you know, you can extend it, in, not quite infinitely, but you can extend it indefinitely um, by thinking of the, what we call the spatial anchor for these new uh, lifestyle services. Now, most of that is, of course, enabled by the internet, but it doesn't change the fact that it interacts with static space, right? And so what we say the service integration challenge is to make all those services work better for and with the space, but also work, work better for the agents involved. And we keep on trying to point out to real estate that yes, you do want package delivery. No, you do not want to be free logistical hubs for highly financially inefficient logistics companies, let alone the retailers behind them, right? Um, and so how services and value and space and participation and value share interact is for me the sort of the obsessive concept that broadly speaking drives this podcast certainly drives our work. And we try to kind of subset that into the piece that relates to, you know, incoming third party goods and services that are regular, but actually the same narrative works pretty much every other dynamic in, in you know, in many other dynamics. And I think most issues to some extent in the emerging um, sort of built environment that we're yeah. imagining that's empowered by the internet. That's, um, that's another, that's actually another great example of somebody who was introducing robotics into construction and architecture in a way that I kind of didn't understand at first that was ahead of its time is kind of what you're speaking about. I remember in, oh gosh, I don't know, 2014 or 15, Toru Hasegawa um, from Proxy and Morfolio um, was teaching a Columbia studio and it was really centered on on robotics, but but it was really about instant gratification through that services layer and kind of how do you design uh, an urban architecture and primarily some kind of, you know, envelope layer or interface layer between the architecture that we're used to designing and this kind of emerging infrastructure that um, is probably best uh, kind of represented by drone delivery, right? Which was, yeah. I think that's when that idea was first being, you know, talked about. And now the FAA has, you know, granted those companies or some of them approval to fly overhead of people. And, and again, it was, it was a really novel approach to how the use of robotics and automation actually shapes architecture, but through these new kind of internet enabled service layers and interfaces. Mm -hmm. And again, it was one of those things where I didn't really put two and two together until years later. And it just seemed like a really out of context, bizarre Columbia studio. Um, but I think a, a lot of credit should go to Toru for thinking about that stuff early on. So what's happening in housing production right now? So, I mean, just to summarize very, very briefly, um, Molly and, and, and Alistair, where 
you, I mean, just w w where has housing development gone wrong? W w where is it wrong? Or is it wrong? Is it great? I mean, w what's going on right now? How does it work very briefly? I mean, so, yeah. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'm letting you, I'm letting you know. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. I can, uh, yeah. I mean, I can, I can like do like a broad summary. I mean, like in the UK, for example, there's really like, you know, a dozen major house builders, um, maybe less, slightly less than that, that are developing housing. And the UK has a housing target, um, right, for new housing and also has an affordable housing target within that. Um, there's, there's only a, maybe one or two councils that actually meet that target. Bristol is one of the ones that is getting close, if not met it last year. I can't quite remember. Um, so it's, you know, and the target is still not enough in terms of the crisis that exists to meet the demands of the crisis. In the UK, there's eight, over 8 million people who are affected by precarity in housing, um, which is one in seven people. It's obviously a much different kind of population than in the US where Brian is. But it, the situation is pretty pretty dire, right? There is there is um, there is a huge a huge amount of need and not enough ability to um, you know make use of the land that's available to be able to meet that need. Then on the other side of it, there's also a lot of a, a beginning to be quite a lot of investment in modular, with this idea that it can be. Um, more affordable and also delivered faster. And what we're discovering is that it can't necessarily be delivered faster because it's not just the building system that's the issue. It's like all these other things around planning and procurement and whatnot. But it might potentially be more affordable. Um, so there's a, a lot of uh, investment in terms of the government around modular housing delivery, which is where the space that we're, we're with our work, um, beginning to occupy. Yeah, I think I think Molly nailed it basically. Um, so, uh, yeah, that. Um, the, 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 I think particularly that, that where you're right there, there, Molly, is the focus on the highly huge, this weird um, ongoing dependence on a really, really small group of really big land speculators uh, and their business model to deliver. And so there's this kind of huge thing where it's constantly trying to tease them and persuade them to do something that is not in their business model to do. Uh, and sort of constantly lowering the bar. And I think part of that, of course, has been confused by this ongoing myth that you can make housing more affordable simply by building more and more of it. And it, it you know, we don't have time to unpick that kind of myth here, but it, it's not that simple, right? It's sort of building more housing kind of works, but it depends where you build it and it, ben, it depends what you build. Um, if, you, if, if all the housing you built is just snapped up by landlords, for example, that just, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't work as a, you know, for first-time buyers, et cetera. So it, it, it's this kind of myth that um, essentially putting more seats out in the car park will make the, the, the tickets in the theatre cheaper. It, it's just not how the land system works. So, um, so you know, in, uh, broadly speaking, though, I think there is a kind of, this interesting thing where so many of these people realize that this this lack of diversity in who builds our homes and who does development is a big deal because if we want to have genuinely sustainable resilient uh, communities and actually you know this is one of the lessons that numbers and supply is not the thing here there's no point building hundreds and houses if they're slums for the next hundred years right you've like you've got to play tenure is what ultimately defines affordability so actually the types of tenure that you have in the land or in the houses is is really really important who maintains that neighborhood is really really important the quality of does that 
so they have lots of trees and green space has a huge impact on people's health outcomes and so forth right so this question of oh wait a minute it was not coming in is this question of well wait a minute if we want those things we have to diversify who is building it in principle everyone is on board with the principle of it um and that is that's where yeah it comes back to this issue of you know like technology is the answer but who what's the question for many years those large centralized house builders they haven't really gotten into um dfma manufacturing etc for housing um, because it, it hasn't truthfully been kind of conducive to their business model to do so. They are now finally doing it, partly because of all the work and, and the effort that the government's been putting in to, to invest in that stuff, but also, frankly, because of the skills crisis, um, uh, in construction skills issues, and so the cost of labour is going up and so forth. So um, uh, that's cool, but actually, I guess the question, and I think Molly and I both share a fascination with this. The the bit we're really interested in is the other end of the graph, what you could call the long tail, the many small, and saying, okay, that's cool that we're building these huge manufacturing factories to support these really, you know, these big housing developers, some of whom, by the way, are building great housing, like Urban Splash and things like that. Um, uh, But actually, let's also use technology to tool up the long tail. Let's also go, right, can we bring the same kind of transformation to small local businesses to community builders to small developers to housing associations and sure to local authorities right so that actually it's it's an all of the above this is not a kind of no one you know against anyone it's saying yes let's have more of everything please and i think that that's the kind of question that that we're fascinated by is basically how can we use digital technology in the web to make planning easier for small players to make procurement easier for small players to make uh, manufacturing and construction easier for small players Ron, give us a sorry, Molly. Molly, you were going to comment. Sorry, yeah, on. I just want to throw one thing into there. It's just like I think what me and Alistair really share here is that building culture used to be so much more participatory for thousands of years, right? Building culture was participatory, and it's become so opaque; it's no longer participatory. And I think for you know technology enables that can enable that participation if done in the right way. And I want to see ultimately a building culture that is participatory. And in that it's more democratic, right? It enables this kind of um, democratization of, of what is currently not democratized in any way. Brian, do you have a sense? I mean, can you comment on the, on the housing production phenomenon in the U S? Hmm. Yeah, probably not intelligently. Um, I I do think like we can't emphasize enough that uh, building more housing is what solves the housing crisis. Um, definitely a policy level problem. Um, but maybe building on the the notion of transparency, um, I had an interesting conversation recently actually with a company called Ebrick. There are a lot of there are a lot of companies out there that offer services that allow you to kind of remotely access job site data through, you know, things like 360 photography and video. And, you know, the conversation with this company was all centered around transparency, which is the idea that, you know, the public, or even if it's just the end tenant, but someone who doesn't, you know, own the building around the project, someone who's not an owner would also be able to have visibility into the production of architecture and, you know, essentially into the schedule of how that's done, which again is one of those ideas that seems like, yeah, that's obvious. That should be a good idea. But I had, I never really 
thought about it outside of the idea, well, the general contractor, the the delivery stakeholders, the owner are all trying to understand progress. But in a lot of these cases, it's a public issue. Um, even if it's not public housing, you know, all housing really, and many civic spaces and even private commercial buildings are in the public and, and become an issue. So I just thought that was an interesting notion and also a good way to, you know, completely avoid and not answer your question. <laughs> I mean, one, one thing that's very diff, diff, I'm very conscious of this because we, we work uh, both in the US and in, and in, and in Europe, Sweden and the UK. Um, the, um, the US is, is predominantly single family housing. Right at the, at the at the at the national scale, which is anomalous in relation to the UK and um, Sweden in particular, but certainly Europe as a whole, uh, and that does change what it means to be the housing cons- construction sector. Because certainly, if you take Sweden, almost everything is multifamily housing. Right? I mean, real houses. There are there are small huts in the countryside, but and yes. rich people live in what are called villas. Um, but that's a very very small piece of the market. Almost all of it is multifamily housing, and in the UK. Not quite so much as multifamily housing, but most of it's dense because the UK is tiny. Um, and so you have, you know, terraced houses and semi-detached houses and so forth. And um, in the US, there's still an obsession with vast tracts of land with these picket fence sort of... Yeah, you have, to have, you have to have your own personal fortress for... Right, exactly. You know. and, and then, you know, one of the strange anomalies here is that, you know, some... People start claiming that tiny houses are an example of, um, you know, sustainable housing, and you have, you know, prefab tiny houses and prefab, you know, single-family homes. I'm thinking this this is not really the correct, you know, housing debate. I mean, b- back on the question of, of companies, right? Because we're going to get to the to the kind of essence of it, the essence of you know of of the of the modularity piece in in a second. But why is it? Because Alistair, you touched on it a little bit. Molly, maybe you have a view on this. Why is it that large housing corporations don't just become modular housing companies, right? Why, why have they not mastered this whole design, build, fabricate, design, fabricate, build, disassemble? Why is that, why has that not been the case for decades already? Because presumably the scale that they're at and the amount of construction sector supply chain power they have, they should have just worked all those out ages ago. Well, what has been blocking that? Uh, th- there's a kind of long answer to this, but a short answer would be to say, um, if you gave a ticket tower a concert, a machine that allowed them to sell their tickets really, really quickly, would they use it? No, because it's not in their business model to do that. So, um, you know, the, the, the essential business business model at play here is this well-known thing that you kind of, you don't exceed what's called the absorption rate, which is the pace, that, the, the, the rate that local market can demand. So, um, yeah, the, sh- the short answer is like, yeah, it's like, what is the question that you're trying to solve? with 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 like automation and manufacturing are you trying to build the houses faster well they don't really necessarily need to do that unless it translates mm-hmm. to a, a lower construction cost um are you trying to build them more sustainably more you know lower energy well they will only do that if um again then you know they're not planning on on build to rent is a much bigger sector in, in the us uh, but it's, it's not so much in the uk so well they're not really sticking around and they're not paying the heating bills. So they'll only do that if regulation forces them to do that. So again, it goes back to this question of does their business model, are they incentivized really to do that? As I said, the yeah. big incentive that's coming in now is is because the cost of traditional construction, you know, brick brickies basically is so expensive. Um, they're recognizing that it, it really makes sense to, to start modernizing. Yeah, and let's not confuse 
the impact of, of technology and the mode of production with, with what we're trying to do with housing, because go through this all the time. I mean, I don't know, a Sears house in like the 1920s was like super high tech prefabricated, you know, mass produced housing, but you know, to what effect, right? So I think it's easy to say those words and to think about technology and modularity and have like a particular image come to mind, but the very, um, you know, problem you're describing in the U S with sprawl, you know, putting words in your mouth, but with like sprawl and single family home construction and just like an enormous, you know, use of space and, and resources is actually using very high tech that's, that's been around for problems. So I think when we talk about these technologies today, we're talking about trying to use them in a completely different way and presumably with a completely different business model, as I'll start saying. Hmm. Um, Molly, do you, have a, do you have a view on that? I was just thinking about how, um, you know, like modular versus prefab versus, you know, there's this conversation around modular versus prefab, right? And I think one of the things is that um, there is oftentimes a real, uh, you know, when you're building at scale, you have to utilize prefab, right? But there's a real hesitancy around the utilization of that term when you're talking to companies that are working in the modular space. Like the prefabrication, for example, is just, it's a, it's a kind of method, right? It's not the kind of architectural syntax or signifier of what the object is. And so I think like one of the things that we've, we have, we understand what prefab is we understand the benefits that can can bring to businesses right but i think that there's a lack of understanding around the kind of um what modularity really means in relationship to how we live in space and how it can bring different ways of living together or not living together um and i and i think there's like I, yeah i think that generally speaking there's kind of a lack of understanding there's also a real hesitation like a real cultural hesitation around this right so the idea that customization can't come from principles of modularity is another real hesitation. This idea around identity, again, going back to this notion of value or value systems. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a, there's kind of a lack of education almost around in construction, but also in housing delivery and just around the general public around what is what is really possible and what do these relationships look like? Mm. I mean, just just to kind of put a full stop on the, or at least a semicolon on the on the issue of large housing companies not using modular or in any way repeatable systems. I mean, it just is odd, and this is one of the many reasons why I just have, I'm saying no time, but almost no time, fucking prop tech people as they are never picking these <laughs> things up. It is odd that these large companies, which are always claiming, like any large company, they want to save costs, are not doing things that in every other industry save costs right the reason why Katera exists is a you know a kind of you know, theoretical superhero of, of verticalizing production is that it can save costs to mass produce the components of housing now the idea that you know i mean you've pointed out for example that there's a reason why they don't have to build fast Alistair, in terms of absorption rate but it doesn't mean they shouldn't build efficiently right efficiency is always a good idea in, yeah. in, in your large-scale business and so the fact that they don't do this there's something very wrong, and the and the and I think what that actually goes back to is that there's something very wrong in the incentive and the market structure of housing in the real estate sector. Yeah, and that probably goes back to land ownership and land share. Is that just it, it, you know there there are you know the, the the nature of the economic 
description of land is quite complex. It doesn't quite work the same way as other inputs to production. But still, there's something very wrong if people who have, who, who have every classical incentive to do things more efficiently just don't do it. Um, yeah. And that's and, and, where PropTech has gone badly wrong because it just doesn't surface these things, right? It says, oh, well, we'll throw technology at this. But as Katera has shown, one of the reasons why Katera has gone wrong, I don't think, is people don't know what to focus on because the incentives aren't there, right? It's just guesswork. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was going to say it's exactly right. I mean, in fairness, uh, you know, uh, to zoom in a bit at the risk of boring everyone to tears, there is also a more detailed nuance to, within that. It's also the construction sector. So the land bit is true. And that, and that you know, as you say, Katera is a good example of that, that struggle. But also, um, uh, even if you're looking at just, say, a public sector organization, right, who, who in theory are much more closely aligned to to to, to, to having the right incentives, etc. It's really tough for them as well, right? In the sense that basically, this is going to sound really boring, but our procurement models aren't really designed to do that. So today, because of the construction model, I mean, you all know this, you know, inside out. So, but you know, because the construction we model uh, methods we use today are so risky and so wasteful, there's no way of knowing how much a building is going to cost until after you've built it, basically, right? The um, we've we've created procurement models designed to outsource risk because the cost of risk and the overheads is so huge. And there's a fantastic report on platform DFMA by Bride and Woods, who are just such a cool company. Um, and uh, they've got this amazing graph in there, which basically shows that in the UK public sector uh, spending on buildings, for every pound spent on a building, only 51p makes it to the actual building. 49p is spent mm. on all the overheads and fees and all that kind of stuff. That's mm. the current construction mm. model. So that's the mm. that's the kind of the the tax base for this. And you'd think, well, that's an obvious case for trying to bring innovation into this model, which it is. But actually, when you try and do that, you try and bring, you know, as you say, Molly says, these various different approaches, prefab, modular, DFMA, whatever you call them, uh, almost all of them, you find procurement waiting for you at the end of the corridor. They say, oh, yeah, well, that's not, we can't, we can't innovate around risk because we outsource it. We don't own the risk anymore. We just black box all that stuff and, and it goes out to a design and build thing. And those those companies aren't necessarily um, in a position where they really want to invest a huge amount upfront in this thing. So yeah, it's it, it's this really multi-layered complexity to these sort of, to the inertia of the existing sort of um, what my colleague Indy Johar would call the dark matter um, sort of systems behind the scenes. I was trying to avoid landing on a council of despair, Alistair, but you may have ruined it. Sorry. You may have broken through. You may have pierced the veil of of dysthymic of dysthymic uh, acceptance that the construction sector is just too disaggregated to. We're, we're totally <laughs> more we're, efficient. It, it, the, you know, I, I want to, to add a note of optimism then, and I'm sure the others will add to this. It, it, it genuinely isn't hubristic to say that technology can make a difference to this, right? So, you know, right. Mo Molly and, and, and we were both really interested in the idea of hey, is it possible to make a factory that you can set up for a few thousand pounds instead of a few million pounds, right? To take away those investment barriers. So, you know, I the note of optimism is to say that the web has already done this to so many other sectors, which just haven't done it yet in this sector. So a lot of this stuff isn't even new, right? It's, it, it's just about applying it and asking the right questions. So I'm actually really optimistic that um, if we're asking the right questions, we, we don't need to be too uh, locked in despair. 
And we also have precedents for it too. You know, like if you, we've been in conversation with Make UK over the last year and Make UK note has, is trying to, you know, part of Brexit in the UK is that we get the the ability to, to bring back localized manufacturing, but obviously we've lost all these skills and expertise and knowledge as a result of exporting our manufacturing. So Make UK is really interested in how do we enable this like lost population to be and in a lot of ways kind of rust belts throughout the country to be able to get those digital skills or at least relationships to digital technologies back into localized manufacturing. And this will permeate into the construction industry eventually, but it's also still a very new project. Okay. Well, so we're running over slightly, but I hope that you guys can stay because there's, there's a few more things we want to cover to kind of wrap all this up into a, a nice kind of cycle. Let's just go go where we have to go. We have to talk about modularity. So um, I think it was you, Molly, um, that, uh, that raised inevitably that there's modularity and there's modularity. Just because you have the same things doesn't really mean you're doing something that's truly modular. So b- build up what modularity is in in in, in how it's been used and what you think it is, Molly, so we just get that really clear. So, I mean, there's like modularity and then there's also kit of part systems. Um, these aren't equatable. They might have similarities and modularity requires kits of parts, but kits of parts doesn't equal modularity, which is another distinguishment that's really important. Because we oftentimes also have a lot of conversation around kit, kits of part systems. Um, and, you know, like the idea of the building kit, right? But that doesn't also equal modularity. So modularity for me, I mean, we use the, the, the term to the the discrete, which builds on notions of modularity. So you have repetition, you have, um, you have, yeah, you have repetition, you have seriality in some way. But in our case with the discrete, you know, modularity tends to be around a unit of some kind, Um, whether that unit is a a modular wall panel doesn't to me equate modularity either. It's usually around the unit, whether that's, and that unit is spatial. So you have say a room or a bath, and that room could be a bathroom, it could be a living room, but it could also be an entire apartment or entire house, right? It could be the module that's repeated and serialized and whatever. And it can usually only ever be arranged in a specific way, right? Because of you know, the way that it's put together with usually it's kit of parts, but it also doesn't need to be kit of parts, it can be quite custom. So for us with the discrete, we've learned from the the problems that you oftentimes always have to um, assemble together modular systems and get a a degree of homogeneity across the way that it's assembled together. So we've designed with our discrete discrete building systems ways of being able to um, have things be create diversity and create heterogeneity within the way that things are combined together. So the way that we do that is we have a building system called block type A, which is one um, cassette uh, unit that can be combined together in a lot, a lot of different ways because of the ways the, because of the connection systems that we use, and it can create a huge range of sp- spatial configurations, which really diverges from the modularity of the 20th century of mass standardization of the 20th century, which is really around the unit. So all of a sudden, you're not thinking about the unit; you're actually thinking about the chunk or the or a bit of spa- a bit of the space, not the entire spatial configuration itself. Mm. Okay, Alistair, what's your? How do you? How would you approach that that question of, think, of what modularity really is? Yeah, I think I think Molly has has nailed it in more depth than than really is worth me doing much more. I really agree with that. I think a key principle of the difference is also interoperability, 
um and and that also yeah. um, speaks to between the layers of the house as well as the components within the system now with WikiHouse, we've definitely we've been on that arc so actually we're currently testing we're in right now in university of edinburgh and bre doing some structural tests on a new version of the WikiHouse system where we've made big 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 steps moving in exactly the direction that that molly is talking about away from a sort of kit of putts approach to something much more lego like um in, in terms of the reusable components for exactly this purpose because it, it it yields up loads and loads of freedoms and uh, you know efficiencies etc cetera, etc cetera. so i mean we we sort of definitely went th- at that level with our sort of wiki house layer of this the stack that's definitely our direction of travel we're also looking at some of the kind of um, the, the design automation software, we're really interested in some amazing companies out there right now, like Hyper and TestFit, really exploring these, uh, this question of what does the web mean for design and design automation? We're doing a very, very crude version of that and exploring a very crude version of that. Um, but the same, the same question, this is something we spend a lot of time philosophizing on, and we try to be as agnostic as possible. We see it as a spectrum where we say, yeah, at that level, some people are going to go for the big volumetric sort of old school crane these things on one size fits all uh, and at the other end of the spectrum you've got um moving down towards sort of yeah discrete systems uh, sub-assembly systems and then at the far end you've got your kind of on-site 3d printer kind of dream which i still I'm, you know i'm still not entirely convinced about but I, I, it's obviously super cool um also so, not so, convinced about that yeah, yeah um, I'll, I'll third that cool cool um uh, i'm not, not convinced of what i'm glad i'm not on my own on this one um not convinced of what on-site 3d printing uh, right so but i'm not convinced uh, either i think that's a hard, yeah. it's a bizarre idea i mean if you mean extrusion based manufacturing on site it's i mean maybe for disaster zones and you've got a substrate you can carry in bags and hydrate on site but it's just astonishing i mean the whole idea of 3d printing is problematic in terms of extrusion of anything whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah. i didn't want to miss out on the rant i mean no, no good get that I'm, gl- I'm so glad we're all aligned on this um uh but yeah so uh, uh, to the container housing <laughs> yeah and we, we sort of where that's kind of where we've drawn a line on the spectrum and said that is a different beast um but everything north of that is sort of interesting and we're saying what can we build ways of talking and documenting and automating bits of the design process? Um, and really what you're talking about there is knowledge, right? A module is an abstract concept, but it's not just the module of making, it's the module of knowledge. You know, it's a unit of knowledge as well. So yeah, it's, uh, we try to be ag- as agnostic as possible about that if we can. I think there's something super profound here. And I think we, um, what I really hope is that this, you know, this podcast series and you know, hopefully collaborations that we engage in around it can start to bring these kinds of things to the surface because I do think that there's a kind of there's a kind of um, sludge of poor quality innovation debate in the built and design sector that is actually preventing progress and we have to sort of push through it a bit. And for example, I've said this repeatedly and everyone ignores me, but it matters to me a lot. The difference between algorithmic and generative design. My like algorithmic design is basically any design that has an algorithm and people call that generative design but generativism generativity as a scientific concept is basically a limited set of reconfigurable units so genetics is generative because you have four amino acids and you can generate lots of um forms out of that and and language is generative because you have a lexicon which basically does not grow and you generate whole books out of that you know people forget that you don't I mentioned this to Molly when we spoke first. You know, you don't invent words to write a novel. You can do, but most people don't. Um, the great American novels 
just you know use the words in the dictionary. And so that's a fascinating principle. And so IKEA's version of modularity, which is when you custom manufacture elements at mass scale, is definitely an efficiency driver of, of a certain sort. And you can certainly imagine you know large scale construction companies pursuing that to some extent they have. Um, but that's not the same as what you're talking about, Molly, when you use the word discrete design or discrete architecture or just, you know, discrete modules or systems, which is that they are finite and at the unit level are extensible. You can attach them using a, a certain attachment logic. Um, and that's very different from IKEA. You cannot put a piece of IKEA furniture together in more than one way. If you try, it will look weird and fall apart. Uh, it's very hard to do it. They are designed for a specific um, uh, uh, construction approach. And so this principle of modularity, which goes back to generative, isn't it generative, generativity, isn't just a kind of something of, of, of analytical interest. Actually, it's very profound because it leads to all sorts of other things. It leads to mass production. It leads to participation. It leads to business cultures. It leads to um, science that isn't possible otherwise. If If you have elements that are universal across many different typologies, many different cultures, many different building environments. You can use the same tools. You can have people fabricating to the, you know, the same things and the same in the, the, to the same standards with different starting starting equipment. And so it comes to the question of standards, right? You know, what are standards for? You know, bricks became a standard thing because it was just efficient to do it that way. Uh, and so you know, we do have you know um, classic discrete design. Um, history in the in the in the history of the built environment, but we somehow entirely lost that as you know contemporary architecture invented things that were all custom. Um, and going down the route of modularity, just in the sense of mass producing elements, isn't necessarily bringing back that standardized, generative, universalized uh, uh, approach. Because you know one of the ways of empowering people is to say, yes, you too, you, you can create. For example, if you know if if you know, you, Molly, or you, Alistair, are creating housing in a certain location, and the modules are, you know, we need panels of that size. Well, anyone can make them, right? It's a standardized panel. I mean, it's not something that has to come from a specific modular factory, as efficient as, efficient as that might be, right? It creates a certain kind of extensibility in the supply chain, which is also fascinating. And so I'm really passionate about having the clarity on the difference between algorithmic design and generative design and how that leads to, how that comes from and leads to um, as you say, discrete uh, design elements, because I think that's powerful for the industry. It also leads to science. If you want to learn about how other people are doing it, it's very hard to reinvent your analytics and your models if everything is literally different from first principles, right? Structurally, programmatically, psychologically, you know, it's, you have to start somewhere. And ideally, if people share the same technical premises, that makes it much easier to correlate design insight. And so that's I mean, one of the reasons motivating me to have this conversation is because it's shocking to me that you have something that starts looking scientific and looking efficient, but isn't very scientific and isn't very efficient <laughs> yeah, in terms I, of the kids of parts, modularity approach. Yeah, I, I, I mean, what you've just said is actually exactly why we, we've got our company has this really boring name, Open Systems Lab, because that's, you know, that was exactly the, that, that thing. And we used to find it really funny is when we first started working on WikiHouse, everyone can, saw, saw it as somehow radical that this was open source. And I'm like, Dude, who owns the IP on the brick as a standard? Yes, no exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're building buildings, Molly, using your your. How advanced is your discrete approach, and and where are you at in terms of the actual build out of of things that use that approach? 
Sure, yeah. Well, we are going on site for our first permanent structures um, in a month's time, which is really exciting. Uh, so we've done three different prototypes so far with the building system. Um, one of which is a two-story housing prototype, the one that I mentioned earlier in East London called House Block. And that, um, yeah, that has been, a, yeah, the first time that we've gone so big, <laughs> you know, it's a full scale one-to-one -one prototype of a house. Um, and then we're going on site for our first permanent structures this summer, which is also really exciting. Like basically we have a plan that we're going to be working on micro sites for the next more or less for the rest of this year before we start to scale up and we have five or six projects in the pipeline. So yeah, that's where we're going. So we're working with engineers and um, environmental engineers as well, thinking about how we can begin to scale up with the practice and the, and the product, let's say product as well. Um, and a lot of the questions that we're asking now is actually that it's quite a big leap to go from say permitted development to <laughs> delivering houses or housing. So there's a lot of conversations that we're having around warranties and insurance and all these other things that actually, um, are the reasons why what is on the market is on the market. So there is a quite a big leap that we have to make over the next um, six to 12 months actually with, with our. Would you say, would you say that your system, I mean, can you, can you, in terms of its discreteness as it were, how mm -hmm. ready do you think it is as a, as a, as an approach? I mean, you have oh, a sense of it being extensible yeah. into, you know, as it is to all sorts of typologies. You want to evolve it. Because no, I remember as a kid, yeah. I used to have a thing called Meccano, right? Well, it's yeah. the same as Lego, basically. But, yeah, but what yeah. used to happen with it, which was quite interesting, which is that, I mean, it is what happens with Lego. And I find it a bit suspicious, basically. And so I'm kind of, I'm edging around towards this question for you, which is that you get the Lego bricks and that's great it's highly extensible but then they say oh well to build this you kind of have to buy this specific textured feature or this curve or this join sure, sure. and you're like well how you know how really discreet is it if we've got to buy these so my point is how how truly extensible do you think your model is how complete will do you think the final form is be or do you need to kind of keep on making extra bits to make it good i mean and we the, do need the, to yeah, where, where we are right now, like with house block, is that really it's the building structure. It can also right. be, you know, it can also be the interior finish if someone chooses the interior finish to be like, you know, um, some beautiful timber. But um, we do need to modularize. And I say modularize because it's more of the commercial term that people understand. We need to discretize a lot of the other systems, but we can also utilize a lot of off the shelf systems that are on the market already. You know, like we mm -hmm. can, you know, one of the reasons why we've designed the system the way it is, is that it's very accessible, you know, it kind of can, can take the best bits of accessibility that's on the market already and be integrated into the system. So, you know, we are working on things like discrete cladding systems, um, for example, discrete foundation systems, for example, because these are the parts that we notice that people that we're talking to really want to be able to customize, but also groundworks, for example, is a really difficult question and it can become really expensive. So we're thinking about those questions as a way of being able to, you know, bring it, make it full, more full, um, not more quickly, but, you know, in a way that means that more people can access it and you alistair how how advanced is your system and how advanced is your progress in the market um 
Yeah, I mean, in, in, I say in some ways, uh, uh, you can tell from Molly's things, she's sort of leapfrogged us because we've been at this in ages. But actually, also, we've been over a lot of those those long journeys, which is the subject of a whole other podcast, navigating the strange world of warranties and insurance, uh, which which really would put people to sleep. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, it's an interesting thing for us because we've been working on this project for a very, very long time. And it's been sort of, it, 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 we've been sort of doing iterative R&D from project to project to project and there's been loads and loads of houses obviously the cool thing it open source so you know houses pop up we get photos of houses in like uh, mongolia and stuff like that which is always funny um and but but basically what was happening is over time we'd sort of amassed this big long list of things we really wanted to improve throughout the entire process and stack and so we sort of uh, about a couple of years ago, we started. We basically said, right, if we put the whole thing in the bin, took all the things we learned and went back to first principles and came up with a new system, what would it look like? And that's what we've been doing. And it took us a long time to, to, to get the opportunity to test that theory in uh, uh, structural structures labs, et cetera, et cetera. But it's working amazingly well. We're incredibly excited about it. So, um, that that is a quite that's quite an exciting thing because it's been the project's been sort of ticking on for along for a long time, and we've just all, all we could do is sort of make plans, and then suddenly we're we're going to have what we think is just a significantly more more mature product, um, and then that's that's going to turn. We're just going to get that out there and share that, and and say let people make their own special bricks. You know, their own. Did you mention a thing called Structures Lab? Did you, did I hear you? That there's a thing called Structures Lab. Uh, well, we're working with Edinburgh University Structures Lab and with the BRE okay, to do yeah. some of that structural testing, which is just really cool. Mm. You know, just massive pneumatic stuff crushing bits of plywood is just just childishly satisfying. Um, and um, uh, yeah, and that so you know it'll be a better, better performing, uh, uh, sort of more mature, better documented version of the system than we've ever, ever always had, really. And so our frustration has always been with the project that the demand to use it is always outstripped. The, the difficulty of doing so it's still incredibly been incredibly hard to use and so we're just obsessed with lowering those barriers really and just trying to um always look to lower the next barrier and we'll just keep doing that and see what happens um so because i'm going to come i'm going to give 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 this over to brian in a second so he can he can he can comment on the on the whole package but molly and 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 alistair what's the role in production and in in um construction uh, for automation and robotic because we've gone through the modularity aspect of it the, are, are you are you assuming automated fabrication processes are you using any kind of robotic or automated construction what's your where are you at with with the automation and robotics aspect of of, of this uh, well from our point of view we're, we're not really like our whole um the whole original, I mean, where we started with WikiHouse was we were only really interested in self-builders. And then it got interesting because then suddenly we got loads of housing associations and local councils and people, you know, and other, you know, workspaces and people on the phone saying, hey, we want to use it. And we we're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this has more uses than we were working to. The the whole original idea of the thing was a thing that that you could build yourself, really, with just a group of people who didn't need construction skill. And that's still that's still our focus. Um, it's a sort of boringly low tech, low low key answer, which is we just make the thing so easy to assemble that you know, and we're trying to get to a point where we hopefully won't need scaffolding and stuff like that. So, um, 
uh, which that's really our our, our focus. Um, you know, I'm I'm sort of kind of excited and interested in in seeing these really cool stuff that that uh, Boston and uh, uh, you see coming out of MIT and all these amazing looking stuff. And I think yeah, it's totally going to be the future. Um, uh, but from our point of view, especially in the long tail, right where um, you know people. Even the capital cost of, for example, um, we looked into the option of blown insulation, right? This cellulose insulation. And even in in the States, those machines are two a penny. In the UK, they're not. And so it's like even the cost of that piece of kit is is a burden if you're if you're only building one, two, three, four, five houses on a microsite. So um uh, you know, it's not really a kind of on our radar at the moment, but I'm sort of um, excited about it as an observer. <laughs> Molly. Yeah, so we, I mean, automation for us is really not just about the tools or the methods, but it's also about like the production framework or, and sometimes the more intangible things too. So it's really kind of a multi-scalar approach. So for example, like we use really straightforward fabrication technologies like CNC machines to fabricate our parts, right? But we've also been testing um, robotic prefabrication of those parts and which is one of the reasons why the parts are designed in a really simple way so that they can have a conversation with increasing automation um so we can both automate the prefab of those parts and also you know do it manually if we need to and then on the other side of that we're developing prototypes for modular distributed robots that can assemble the parts themselves and together into, you know, into spaces and places. And that is a much longer research um, that we've been developing for about the last six years, um, mainly through our teaching at the Bartlett. But now we're beginning to bring into the company as we gain more resources to be able to do that because it's very resource intensive to, as Brian will be able to relate to, um, to develop robotic technology. Uh Brian, go for it. Where do you see robotics and automation in, in this approach? I mean, I would say that Alistair, ironically, in, in designing um, elements for vernacular or, or community-led construction actually creates an opportunity for robotics because presumably robots can, can fit relatively straightforwardly into, uh, into those uh, construction processes. But where, 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 where do you think robotics in, 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 in automaking construction is in general? And is there a specific role for Spot or the, or the family of animals, the zoo, uh, that Boston Dynamics is producing? Yeah, I mean, broadly, um, I think across the industry, there have been you know, two major thrusts. Um, one is the idea of field robots, uh, which historically have been task specific performing different trades on site the other thrust is with industrialized construction which can really range from off-site methods um, to a number of construction automation methods where the factory method or methodology is actually brought to site and i think they're both important um, and i think they both inform one another and and at we work that was actually the two things that I was really focused on. There was a much stronger push at the time for the industrialized construction stuff and back to the notion of modularity. You know, for us, you know, modularity meant coming up with some, some dimension, right? Um, 
that could accommodate our SKU or our unit mix that could accommodate our desk count, which is really what drove revenue um, that could accommodate our, the dimensions of our procured architectural elements in FF and E. And that would also open up opportunities for the stuff we had direct manufacturing control over uh, with verticalized prefab elements like our storefront. And we were always very specific with the language there, which is it was uh, unitized, modular, prefabricated. And I believe you can say those words, those three words in any order you want to mean the same thing. Um, but it was very much a kit of parts. But the idea was that you had to come up with some kind of spatial grid uh, that could accommodate everything, the stuff we were manufacturing ourselves, as well as what we were procuring, as well as the stuff that impacted the business model itself, like the desk count and the SKU. And you were going to an existing stock, which you'd like to think is all rectangles, but it absolutely isn't. And even if it was supposed to be a rectangle, well, you know, physics have taken over and it's not anymore. So we also had to come up with like some really intelligent ideas around uh, flex zones and things like that. And this really went end to end, right? This was something that impacted our design automation tools, like the stuff that Andrew Human was working on with, with automated desk layout um, and automated partition layout. And then the stuff I was working on, which was kind of filed a factory, filed at ERP, um, the less sexy part of uh, file to factory and then um and then eventually the issue of on-site robotics and we got to that too because the thrust for field robots really came from trying to create a feedback loop of reality capture to inform uh, some kind of centralized design model or asset so i think that we had really gone end to end with verticalized building delivery um as much as we could but there were still trades in the mix obviously and you know, there still had to be some intelligent way to communicate layout, but to also understand that mistakes happen and, you know, also progress can change things and sequencing and all the fun stuff that happens in the real world to relate that back to the model, to actually not just try to drive a vector as deep into the delivery process as possible from a designer or a design model, but to establish some kind of feedback loop. And that's where field robots really became valuable. And after pulling my hair out with all sorts of wheeled and tracked models and, you know, a variety of reasons why drones aren't ready yet for interior commercial construction environments and may never be in a fully robust way. Um, that's really what led me to legs, which I thought were pretty exotic initially, but then I was realized this was the only kind of mode of locomotion that could actually get everywhere I needed it to get to with the sensors mm -hmm. to then again, establish that feedback loop. Now we were looking at task specific robots piloting, uh, everything's come out of stealth this year, right? So we were like piloting the canvas drywall robot and speaking with Hilti mm -hmm. about the J bot for drilling and things like that. But to me, what attracted me to robots in construction was to say, actually, you know, traditional fixed industrial automation is going to work really well for a lot of the stuff we're going to be bringing to site. And, and what I think mobile robotics brings to bear for construction to kind of fundamentally change the delivery process is the ability to establish that feedback loop. And, you know, I don't think there's a substantial difference whether your construction ends up being modular or not, at least kind of on the observation and but it certainly begs a kind of different set of questions for the value of uh, task specific field robots when you have things mm. that are primarily produced on site, what then does the field become the field, the field becomes kind of a 
an interface of, of logistics and layout and, and data capture and, you know, some finishing yeah. as well, I suppose. I think that's one of the, I mean, so that's one of the reasons why, you know, I was, I was happy that you, you wanted to join this episode is that once you get down to a strictly, uh, strictly generative approach to, to modularization, which is that you have a finite and in fact a limited set of elements and, and logics of syntax to use Molly's language. Um, it makes it massively easier to talk about automation on the, not just in terms of manufacturing, right? That's one thing. Um, and, in, and, and I don't know, but it's, I suspect there's not that much difference between, you know, manufacturing efficiencies for, you know, truly generative, discrete designs and things that are just modules to produce at mass scale, or at least not now, um, but certainly at the, at the uh, construction and finishing level, the, a significant reduction in the in the in the elements and their join logic means i think as you're implying brian there's a lot more opportunity to to bring automation into the field right whether it's you know static um tooling uh robots or it's things that are more dynamic like spot i mean the, the nature of spot basically is that is that it can find its way to a certain location and then lock itself off and behave like a static robot and you can configure it with a with any tooling you like right that's the principle as far as I can tell, it's basically a mobile platform for whatever you want to do, right? So it actually, it actually removes, starts to remove the distinction between mobile and static because you can make it quasi-static, at least for certain kinds of applications that don't necessarily racing or, or, or can handle pressure or whatever. But um, that for me is fascinating. And I think it, 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 get, it, goes, it actually starts closing the loop and we start to see little kind of glimmers of how the industry can kind of pull itself together in a, in a more uh, organic way. It's interesting that there are tool makers who would find that a, a, a promising approach to see that designers and fabricators are creating a componentized, discrete um, version of modularity that they can then optimize around on the tool basis because in the middle there's now robotics and automation that can facilitate that, right? In, in theory, I mean, I think that's part of what you're implying. Hilti can attach a device to one of your robots um, and if that's addressing a standardized interface that's much more manageable and scalable yeah you can almost think of you can almost think of each like uh you know building element as as a product coming into yeah. in, uh, into the market of that architectural system and if it can you know disrupt and take a lead market position then it can create a series of other services around it in the long run to then you know 10x or exponentially add value to the fact that it has been uh now i'm confused about what words to use i feel like you know, <laughs> modularized or discretized or uh yeah, yeah. you know whatever the word may be well i mean one of the ways i'll start to round off now but one of the ways to kind of get to start i think a process of helping on the language side is to ask the question um, why is your approach not a standard, Molly, right? Because there's the, in, in, we take the technology industry, right? And we look at, let's take mobile phones or, or, or you, know, you know, computers, um, kind of consumer computation. There's a lot of standards in the industry for connectivity, for example, right? So you can create a circuit board and you can plug circuit in circuits, yeah, you can plug um, uh, parts of a computer into the circuit board uh, on the basis that there are standard connectors. Right. And this somehow is just not really a dominant piece of the conversation, even in the modularization 
piece of, of, of the construction debate. And I would commend that to you. So I'm, I'm, I'm pushing something on you, Molly, but I'm going to surface it as a question. <laughs> um, do you think that it's worthwhile thinking through a standard or standardization as a kind of robustification, to invent a horrible word, of a truly modularized approach? Right, because that makes like everyone's life easier, and it's odd to me because in most other industries there's a big rush to create the standard. Not only are standards st standard, standards are, are, are normalized. There's a hyper aggressive push to create de facto standards in the industry because then people converge on your product or your leadership in the market. And so <laughs> that's my commending that you become the standard. But then, as a question, what, what, where are you in relation to standards and standardization of a modularized, discrete approach? I mean, I think that as long as we are able to enable there to still be heterogeneity, contextualization, and diversity, that's good. Because as soon as that is removed from the equation of standardization, then we are repeating the same mistakes, right? So that's one thing that I'm highly concerned with is how do you enable contextualization to still occur and how do you enable places to really speak to what their needs are? Um, so that's one way of thinking about it. The other thing is to, is to think about it on a social level, right? So like we're dealing with housing specifically, um, but we're also thinking about community spaces and, and standards around housing are really important to consider. We see over the last, you know, 60 years, housing standards in the UK have become more and more constrained because of increasing financialization really at its core, right? So I think that we need those standards, those social standards and expectations to be something that's designed for and part of any discretization of a product. Hmm, interesting. What do you mean? By, I mean, can you clarify slightly more? Well, for example, you have um, space standards are really generally like, you know, there used to be a lot more space in the space standards. <laughs> yeah. Um, from the 1940s and 1950s, right? Mm -hmm. That's not the case today. Although it, the the houses are ever so ever smaller than ever before, right? Um, or a flats are ever smaller than ever before. So I think we need to think about having, yeah, being able to be generous with that space and allowing abundance to be something that's built into our system rather than scarcity and mm -hmm. and you know minimal standards being an issue. Mm -hmm. One aspect of standardization that may be, you know, socially empowering is to insist that joins are reversible, right? Um, insofar as that's structurally viable, which in most cases it should be. If you, you know, I mean, I've looked at different versions of these things, but most structural joins can be reversible, at least using specialist equipment. But reversibility creates, I think, a, a lot of potential for people who are inhabiting a property to say, okay, actually, I want to move that wall. I want to reconfigure the space. I want to, you know, um, I want to think through different um, programs and, and value propositions. And that totally. is something that is linked, the empowerment aspect of that is linked to the, um, to the, uh, to the discreteness of the, of the design and the, and the elements of I it. I think a, uh, another component of that, possibly too, related to some earlier conversation, is what Molly's working on. By virtue of creating that kind of uh, similarity and reduced variation, you know, all this stuff I'm talking about, which is like tracking, you know, which is anything from just wanting to monitor progress to the idea of providing, you know, digital twin operation services at the end of the day. You know, this could all be done with a simple computer vision model now, 
right? We don't need to worry about RFID tags. We don't need to worry about decoding, you know, 10,000 variations in drywall shapes or stud <laughs> lengths. Um, Thank you for not mentioning fucking QR codes. Oh, God, I'm so done with that stuff. I mean, like, sorry to interrupt, but there's another of my little mini rants. Like, computer vision is way more powerful than people that seem to understand. And they think we need QR codes to recognize objects. Sometimes it's useful for calibration and for security, but visual recognition is pretty powerful. Anyway, carry on. Brian. I was done. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I feel that, um, you know, one, one sort of the many pieces of our work that's kind of got, you know, stuck because I was um, wildly over... Um, over enthusiastic about the capacity of real estate to 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 follow up on innovation that it said it wants. Right, we were told that they want real, the real estate partners we started with want surface integration. They all still say the same thing, but you know, two years later, almost nothing has happened that's required to move these things forward. And so, one of the pieces on our very long list of things that we've half developed but haven't executed yet is a standardized um, last meter interface. Right, we've designed a what we call a drop store pick system, which we're we're going to patent, which basically uh, modularizes and disc disc in, in a discrete way the interface at the last meter is basically storage rooms, any interface where goods and services and people can in, can interface and have require a physical anchor. Where basically we imp we implement very limited fixed infrastructure in the building, and we assume that all inbound goods have um, attachments that can attach to a lattice structure. And that we are standardizing, right? We feel that that's the correct way of going about it, that, you know, to create a discrete, finite approach and put a standard on that and build collaborations around on that basis. It's probably antithetical to, on some level, to participation because you're saying, hey, we want our standard to be the one. As I say, you know, I think it's commercially, you know, advantageous for somebody to do that. But on the other side, it is empowering because everyone has a standard that they can use. But that's something that we've thought through is that there definitely needs to be modularization in terms of the last meter interface. Uh, otherwise, it's just chaos. And we already have that in middle mile. Containerization is basically discrete modularization. The entire middle mile industry is, not, is almost entirely containerized around a fixed format and subversions of that fixed format. And so that's an example of modularization that we're very fixed on. Um, and have kind of studied a fair amount. And I see this being very helpful to, at least in one way, democratize the industry, certainly simplify it and render, render it more efficient. Um, just one or two final points. I mean, do you think through, is this part of your thought process, Alistair or, um, uh, or Molly, and to some extent you, Brian, in terms of disassembly, the, the circular potential of modularized, particularly discrete, uh, housing and construction, can we actually reclaim, reuse uh, materials? I mean, because some of it's technical. Is it technically possible? But also it's sort of strategic. Even if those materials are recovered, can they be used? What's your, where are you at on sort of circularity of, of materials for construction? Yeah, we, we see it as a kind of hygiene, basically. Like we're trying to design everything we can to be as circular as we can all the time. Um, you know, it's a kind of boring answer, but it's obvious, right, that we've got to move into a zero waste, zero waste future just as much as a zero carbon future. Construction is currently, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? It's correct to say it's the single biggest producer of waste. So, um, yeah, and, and, and it's not massive, you know, that's not the hardest, you know, that's not the hardest problem. It's like it's totally doable. Again, we're wishing 
at risk of sounding like a boring broken record um it goes back to a matter of incentives um and you know incentive structures and that was really interesting when we started looking at what we call fairhold this this exploring this idea of a different model of ownership we said oh wait a minute this is weird because one of the side effects it would do is it would essentially cause houses to be funded no longer through mortgages where the financing of the house is tied to the land but um to where the the financing essentially you're financing them as consumer products in the same way we do cars and other things like that as consumer durables with a finite life and the moment you do that um it's going to say suddenly flip things so there's a massive incentive to actually see components of buildings as having a residual value so partly that can and should be done through regulation and through standardization but and partly the work should be done through um uh, you know uh, through, through trying to work on the incentive structures that un- underpin these things because there's a lot of brilliant engineers who know we know how to make a circular construction industry i think we've probably known for a few years the issues is, is getting people to organize and it's the same actually going back to what you're saying about standards you know there's so many standards that we write that are needed right now we we we're obviously obsessed with open standards but we're not hubristic enough to imagine that we would create any uh, you know we put our stuff out there and if it gets adopted great or copied that's great we're a bit closer to that with some of our digital planning work but the the, the sort of seek the sort of behind the seat standards is you know if you look back into the history of intermodal shipping containers the iso standard for that it was this huge political bun fight this huge politics of these big incumbent companies you know trying to uh, own the standard or control the standard or you know advocate for once it takes a long time to get people to recognize that actually trust is a really important part so brian you raised this really superb example actually of of um you know digital twins um the example i always use is imagine a point in the future there's there's a fire in your building the fire brigade pull up outside they need to be able to instantly pull up complete diagnostics of of the construct construction of that building complete um uh, 3d maps of who has been in that building in the last five minutes and so on and so forth right but think about that you don't want any old firefighter to have access to that data anytime they want so there's trust layers so if you think about all the data standards and all the trust layers that need to be built that's an institutional design problem as much as a thing so yes we need to set about doing it but don't imagine that just the big uh, you know the big for-profit players alone will do it. You need to create that that kind of institutional middle space um, uh, uh, to have those debates and, and to and to arrive at those for industry to arrive at those standards as quickly as possible. Hmm, interesting. Um, uh, in, on, I mean, it, it's it's great that 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 organically the issue of digital twins uh, arises, since that part of the, the the sponsorship with Epic is 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 to raise those things. <laughs> so I feel like you're doing my job here for me. But actually, to be fair, the reason why I agreed to you know to do the thing with Epic Games is I'm actually very interested to see how the gaming industry does contribute because they have got way more computing power, and I think far more advanced technology, at least in some senses, and certainly much more ambition the embedded um, kind of incumbent actors in the AEC space. Do you have a specific sense uh, holistically of how um, uh, uh, digital twin models can facilitate uh, modular construction in general? Is that part of it? Or is it just that's a useful thing once it's all done? Just register it in a digital twin and then let people use it later. Do you have a sense of that, Molly? I mean, I think that... um... There's like a couple of layers to this. One is about thinking about the design process itself. 
and how a digital twin can be a mechanism through which more stakeholders can be part of that process in a meaningful way that obviously happens like within the existing stakeholder group within a design process. But I think that this, there's a real opportunity there to expand that and widen that depending on the kinds of information that you're asking people to really, um, that contribute to. And then on the other layer, there's, uh, you know, a lot of thinking around when you're actually dealing with problems on a site, really thinking through how that digital twin can adapt, you know, things like assembly for us, for example, things like assembly instructions or, you know, quality control issues and how a digital twin can really refer back and have some of the intelligence around how to deal with those things. Um, And then on the other side, I think that there's a real, opportunity in the manufacturing space to think about how when you're fabricating building elements, how that digital twin can also respond to some of those issues around quality control that might happen in the fabrication space as we kind of grow up the industry to be able to really think in a digital way, which currently, you know, we we know a lot from other industries, but within construction itself, we don't know very much. But that is one of the things I hope that you know that Epic Games and, and, and Twin Motion, which is kind of closer to the digital twin space, not exactly mm-hmm. a digital twin company, but it's moving in that space, takes away. So I think that there are there are use cases and there are dynamics of use cases. I mean, you describe, for example, the the missioning model for data, right? It's all very well if you have a functioning digital twin model that can serve up structural aspects, safety aspects, usage aspects, but you can't just make it universally available, right? So no, you yeah. have to structure the the use case is quite quite carefully for the specific dynamics of that use, yeah. um, and I and I would like to see that in the tooling, right? Because digital mm-hmm. twin is, I think, is is more of an abstracted uh, mission and vision than it is an operational reality right now, and that's not just because the industry is not you know very coherent in terms of you know different uses for different data in different systems, and that's its own blockage. But it's also that what we want. Um, what we need hasn't yet been, you know, evolved technically sufficiently for everyone to kind of converge, converge onto it. Yeah. Uh, certainly, in terms of circular production and circular circularity, I had a conversation this morning with all of the topologic guys, all of the guys doing kind of information modeling. Um, they just invited me into their technical chat, which was really fascinating. And they were talking about blockchain of, of you know, of, of, of building materials. And I, and I am pretty suspicious and resistant to blockchain models because it's not necessarily like, I don't believe that, that the distributed model is, is useful in most cases. But I suddenly realized as you were speaking um, that I can imagine a situation as if we get into a, mo- into a world where we have modularized components that are designed for disassembly, we have digital twin models where these things are explicitly in a live schedule. So they're state is there and we have some sense in which for example they might become available you can definitely start imagining how markets for 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 as it were secondhand construction materials starts to be meaningful right and that starts to go in the direction of there being you know um distributed um like blockchain type uh tagging models and value models if you have an explicit at scale you know listing and you know scheduling for release as it were uh, information environment for components uh, across the build space but we're not close to that now but i think the more we do take modularization seriously and start baking that into explicit digital twin models i think those starts those second order of things start to be more valuable and then can drive acceleration in some kind of virtual circle um final piece just a final final question just just to make sure we we, we focus on 
people rather than capitalists <laughs> as the last as the last thing to say. Um, what can people do themselves? Well, I have actually have one more one more question of this for you for all of you. But but what, but just but what can individuals do to accelerate housing through the work that you're doing? Right, given that what is motivating you in particular, um, Alistair and um, Molly. What can any one individual do to say, I want a house now, I want it to be cost-effective, I want it to be sustainable, I want it to be healthy, I want it to be convivial. How can they get it? How can they help you to help them? Um, I think like a big aspect of this is to actually really protest. <laughs> you know, like really get involved with the kinds of decision-making structures that are already in existence, you know, town halls, community consultations, and really begin to ask some of those harder questions around what are the processes that enable people to get involved or what are the processes that close doors to a lot of people getting involved and to really begin to process, like to protest that and to say, you know, um, say that things need to be done differently. And also just to look at what is happening within your community. Where can you begin to get involved? Where can you begin to ask questions? And who are the players within that community that you might be able to access that can become your representative, that can become those people that will ask those questions in the, in the, in the kind of realms and venues where there is an opportunity to begin to make some form of change. I take a higher, I take like a hardcore activist approach generally when it comes to community engagement, as you can probably imagine. Now I'm, I'm going to be quite close to Molly actually in, in as much as I think um, the active activism thing, yes, but particularly at a local level, right? So, um, you know, we need to, we need to kind of stop, stop buying all this stuff of, Oh, you know, we're going to solve the housing crisis. If only the developers would build more homes instead. Yeah. Connect with people and say, Hey, that bit of land at the end of our thing, who owns that? Who's controlling that? Right. Go and find out your local authority. What, what local, what bits of land do they own and say, well, why are you going to sell that to a developer who's going to sit on it or give us maximum 20% of affordable housing? Why don't instead you sell it to us, div it up into plots, right? Sell it directly to us. We'll build sustainable, affordable, genuinely affordable homes. In fact, don't even sell it to us, license it to us under really rigid terms, right? Like, like a community land trust. OK, so in, instead of this sort of this leftover neoliberal kind of rubbish, which is the idea we're going to sell public land to to only to large developers who will then build, the, you know, kind of the same kind of stuff on it. Say, why aren't put that pressure on local authorities to do that? Now, actually, there are every local authority in the UK right now actually has an obligation to maintain a, a self and custom build register. It's usually a kind of little thing hidden in a drawer somewhere. But in theory, they actually have a legal obligation to be tracking demand for this um, and allocating land from their portfolio and from the, in their planning processes accordingly. So um, I, that that would be the I would say the first step is to say, hey, it is we're making these technologies that are going to make it much, much easier for most people to build a home for themselves, either as an individual or as a group with their friends or, or with their community. Um, so go away and turn around and start at that local level and start go to the local authority and say, hey, why are you sending the land to them? License it to us. Okay. Um, does that, is that a question relevant to you, Brian, do you think? I mean, probably less so. I, I, but I think, you know, I spend a lot of my time just talking about, you know, change and innovation in general and that being kind of inseparable from not having a shared risk model. So like in the U.S., if you're 
talking about any of this stuff in the context of design bid build, it's probably a dead end. Um, and, and, you know, building an awareness around, you know, industrialized robotic methods, but also kind of calling out, um, you know, adjacent like methods and modes of research that are, that are kind of popular with design computation as problematic. I mean, the, you mentioned the circular thing. This is what's always driven me crazy about design optimization, composites, 3D printing. Um, But yeah, to wrap up, like just this idea, like I'm going to hyper optimize, you know, some kind of robotically constructed like composite structure for this like one use and this one point in time just goes against everything we're talking about in terms of like accessibility, sustainability, um, and frankly, even just a value, you know, a valid business model. Um, so I, I spent a lot of my time just kind of dispelling technology myths that I hope uh, beneficially contribute to, to this adjacent conversation around housing. Okay, well, let's, let's round it up. I mean, I can see that this is going to go on and on. My, my hope is that um, the conversation gets more coherent around modularization, verticalization, and, and the social sort of need for um, more efficient and more, and more available housing. Flux was originally created on the basis that it was an, an opportunity to create housing at scale, and that didn't go so well. But I think we're more in a in a in a more kind of sophisticated and step by step conversation now. That was so let's see how Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but that's also just that trap. I like literally tweeted about this today, that like trap of the addressable market, which is like for yeah. any new business to just be like construction is, you know, one hundred billion dollars by virtue of us being in this industry, if we can somehow carve out one percent of that, well that somehow is really important to articulate. Yeah, yeah. Um but thank you, and um, uh, and let's let's keep the conversation going. Um, it's great to, that you've joined this this new season. Let's see if Epic Games helps us, you know, raise the raise the tone and raise the scale of the uh, of the of the of the of the message. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.